Welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Today we begin our June series, How God Uses Imperfect Dads to Impact Their Kids' Lives, with a look at the responsibility of Christian men to protect fatherhood itself in our culture by speaking out against the erosion of the biblical worldview of gender. What do you think of the statement, all that is necessary for woke forces to cancel fatherhood today is for Christian men to say nothing to stop them? The widespread attack in our culture upon gender roles is at its core an assault upon God's creation design of the institution of the family one man and one woman, bound in the covenant of marriage to be the family where human children flourish. The National Fatherhood Initiative, along with men's ministries like Iron Sharpens Iron, have named June National Fatherhood Month. A Google search also reveals other jurisdictions, such as Fairfax County, Virginia, and other government locations which have named June Fatherhood Awareness Month. During a month when every Christian cringes at the promotion of the destructive LGBTQ life by naming June Gay Pride Month, Christians now have a gracious way to say, I believe the gay life is destructive. I'm celebrating National Fatherhood Month instead. The question I have is, will we Christians be as passionate about promoting fatherhood this month as the LGBTQ plus advocates are about promoting gay pride? This episode examines why our words promoting fatherhood need to be heard by our children, grandchildren, neighbors, and work associates. It further suggests winsome ways to present the biblical worldview that fatherhood is vital for human flourishing. Thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode number 23 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. God has entrusted His revelation to His people so that we can enrich the rest of culture with its wisdom. Those who are lost don't have the truth, and we need to weep for them and speak truth when we have the opportunity. Abraham, the father of both the Old Covenant and New Covenant people of God, was chosen with his posterity to be a blessing to the nations. Jesus taught that his followers must shine our lights into the darkest corners of human existence, spreading truth about flourishing throughout the earth. The most important part of that light is, of course, revealing the truth that life is in Christ. But that is not our only message. In God's good plan for earth, the salt of the biblical worldview of sexuality, his design of gender in the family, injustice, and oppression must be expressed by God's people to preserve the earth, holding back the decay of sin. In another text, Matthew 13:33, Jesus tells us that our biblical worldview must spread like leaven throughout the culture if we are to be faithful kingdom members. Considering this clear calling, the blinding speed of gender theories spread throughout our culture in the last decade raises the question, are Christians speaking up about gender issues? Or are we too afraid of being labeled patriarchal oppressors, gay bashers, or transphobes? 
Some Christian writers have flat out said that Christians who say nothing to stand against the gender-blending forces in our culture are cowards. It is not my place to judge other Christian leaders, but the words of Martin Luther seem to have great significance today. He wrote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are attacking at that moment, I am not being faithful to Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefields is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So let's review the profound significance that we see of fatherhood from a biblical worldview perspective. First, God himself is called God the Father. Names matter in Scripture. God did not call himself God the Mother. Jesus repeatedly called the first person of the Trinity Father, teaching his disciples to do the same. When Jesus gave his marching orders to his church, he commanded, Go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There is something about the very nature of God that is described by the word he chose for himself, Father. Second, male-female distinctions matter to God. In God's revelation to us about our own creation, God devotes five verses in Genesis 1 to emphasize that Adam and Eve equally share the dignity of being God's image bearers. In Genesis 2, he devotes 21 verses to showing how differently he created Adam and Eve. In a perfectly parallel structure, God emphasizes how differently he created male and female to be. Adam is made for the ground. The ground is described as needing a gardener, Genesis 2.5. Adam is made from the ground, given a name that means ground, called to work the ground. And when he sins, what is cursed is the ground. Eve, in contrast, is made for the man to provide companionship, chapter 2.18, is made from the man, is given the name woman, Isha, because she came out of the man, is called to be a partner with the man, and when she sins, what is cursed is her relationship with the man and their kids, Genesis 3.16. Why in the creation story would God devote just five verses to Adam and Eve's identical roles, but four times that number, 21 verses, to their differences? The only answer I can come up with is because the differences are important. For 4,000 years of history, these differences have been recognized and they have been fully substantiated by science. It is only our culture, because of the influence of the LGBTQ movement, that attempts to deny the obvious male-female differences in God's design. Our children, grandchildren, neighbors, and work associates need to hear how important male and female differences are. God went out of his way in Genesis 2 to point that out to us. Number three, after our races fall, the paradigm for our restored personal relationship with God is calling him Abba, Father. 
Paul observes, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All believers have the privilege of calling the God of the universe, Abba, Father. Paul does not say that we can now call God, Mama. Fourth, in God's book, the Bible, history does not begin with government or even the church. It begins with a wedding, that of Adam and Eve. And it ends with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The institution that God chose for perpetuating the human race is the family, where the child is loved by both a father and a mother. Creation itself tells us that the nuclear family is not just a social construct. The biological fact that conception takes place in the context of husband and wife making love speaks volumes about the best environment for a child to be nurtured in to reach healthy adulthood. I'm going to say that again. The biological fact that conception takes place in the context of husband and wife making love speaks volumes about the best environment for a child to be nurtured in to healthy adulthood. In God's obvious creation design for a child to fully thrive, he needs a family built on mom and dad's love for each other, not a village. Extremists on both the right, Hitler, and the left, Mao Zedong, claimed that children belonged to the state, not to parents. Fifth, through Paul, God spells out the way he wants the human family structured. Paul defines the different responsibilities of wives, then husbands, then children, commanding them to obey their parents. So we might expect the next group, Paul, that addresses to be parents, but it is not. Well, how about mothers? No. It is striking that when Paul addresses household responsibilities, especially the training of the children, he doesn't mention mothers, but gives commands to fathers. This pattern of responsibility began with Abraham, the father of the Christian faith. God said of Abraham, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This responsibility was not given to Sarah. By the way, if you are a grandfather, notice that Abraham was not only to lead his own children, but his entire household after him meaning his sons and daughters-in-law, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, to walk with the Lord. Of course, the Bible does not devalue the mom's role in her kids' lives. Paul commands the older women to teach the younger women to be husband lovers and children lovers. But Paul specifically assigned fathers the responsibility to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Scripture reveals that fatherhood is irreplaceable. But the significance of fatherhood is also made clear by observing what we call general revelation, simply observing the world around us. Modern psychology has discovered that many adults carry an emotional deficit if they have not had a loving personal relationship with their fathers. Labeled the father wound, countless adults are being shaped by this lack of fatherhood connection. How does it affect a child when his or her father is absent, abusive, uninvolved, or just plain uncaring? Here are some of their words. 
I've had to grieve a distant, abusive, and uninvolved father. I felt like I was an interruption or an inconvenience to my unhappy father who always seemed angry with me. Even more conclusive than data about the impact of the father wound is the research revealing the effect of father absence on children in American society. For example, children who grow up without fathers are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. I mentioned this just a few weeks ago, the words of Barack Obama. Also, the administrators of one secular historical black college, Morehouse College, wrote that they, quote, believe that among the most urgent problems facing the African-American community and the entire nation is the reality that 70 percent of African-American children are born to unmarried mothers and that at least 80 percent of all African-American children can now expect to spend at least a significant part of their childhood living apart from their families. Those words from Avadi Bakum's recent book, Fault Lines. Third, the correlation of crime with father absence is indisputable. According to the U.S. Department of Justice report entitled, What Can the Federal Government Do to Decrease Crime and Revitalize Communities? Children from fatherless homes account for 63% of youth suicides, 90% of all homeless and runaway youths. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders, 71% of all high school dropouts, 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centers, 75% of rapists motivated by displaced anger. In the last 15 years, many politicians and advocates of critical race theory have co-opted the legitimate concern of naive Christians about racism and the poverty of our cities. Arguments about white oppression have caused many of our children and grandchildren to abandon true Christianity for the imposter progressive Christianity. But we must help the rising generation ask, are these groups sincere in their care for our cities or just using naive Christians to accomplish their own political agenda? In my opinion, the answer is found by examining their commitment to overcome the proven impact of fatherlessness on our city's children. Are these groups committed to restoring the nuclear family in our cities? When we hear politicians blaming racism for the problems of our city, we need to speak up and ask, what is your plan for addressing the fatherlessness of our cities? Let's consider how we might winsomely respond to the argument that the Bible teaches oppressive patriarchy. The rising generation is being taught that when the Bible makes distinctions between gender roles, it reflects the sinful patriarchy of an unenlightened, old-fashioned cultural system that abuses and oppresses women and children. We need to speak up about this commonly held myth that is shaping so many of the rising generation. We must wisely guide others to see that this view is nonsense. 
let's look at the five most common fallacies in this argument. Number one, the accusation that the Bible embraces unjust patriarchy often begins with a straw man. This faulty logic misrepresents the view of Bible-believing Christians that men and women are created differently to complete, that is to complement, the other, which is called complementarianism. The straw man they use to misrepresent complementarianism is an extremist viewpoint held by groups like the Vision Forum, who argue that God reveals himself as masculine, not feminine, women should not vote, and unmarried adult women are subject to their father's authority. In clear contrast, the document that actually does represent the Bible-believing consensus of complementarianism, which is called the Danvers Statement, explicitly says... Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. This document also refuses to make any statements about gender roles outside of the home and the church. When we hear someone say, Christians follow an outdated book that reflects oppressive patriarchy, we must love those around us enough to not let that statement go unchallenged. Instead, we can ask, well, what makes you say that? Regardless of their answer, we might later say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and I don't know any Christian who holds those extremist views. The Christian husbands I know are mostly trying to love their wives sacrificially to meet their wives' needs. To understand a second fallacy in the argument that the Bible teaches unjust patriarchy, we need to know that the complementarian view of male and female taught by Paul holds that Adam was designed to be the leader of his marriage before the fall and that headship is not the result of sin, but of creation. This was Paul's view and the reason that Paul wrote, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Paul did not see Christ followers' redemption from sin as erasing creation differences, but rather calls Christians to use those creation differences to showcase Christ and the church. In contrast, egalitarians argue that Paul got his words from the culture and not from God and argue that submission is based on the fall. But Christ has set us free from such archaic practices. Egalitarian Jeremy Bauma, writing in Christianity Today, uses false circular reasoning when he says proponents of gender-based hierarchy don't believe ontological, that means an equality of being, ontological equality of men and women leads to functional equality. Equality of being does not lead to equality of roles. Bauma subtly infers that somehow a difference in roles violates the ontological equality of male and female, the equality of worth and dignity. But he provides no data to support his claim. He makes the assertion that anyone who views men and women as having different roles in marriage, by definition, sees them as unequal. When we hear an argument like Bauma's, we must challenge this statement with a question. Why would you think that a wife yielding to the leadership of her husband means that she is admitting that she is inferior? After the response, we can continue. 
Does an athlete's submission to her coach mean she is an inferior human being who has less value than the coach? Does a public school teacher yielding to her school principal's authority mean that she is admitting that she is an inferior human being to that principal? The third logical fallacy that is used to accuse the Bible of unjust patriarchy is implying that there is causation when there is just correlation. Those who fault God's home and church structure of leadership for the horrible mistreatment of women are sadly mistaken when they blame the structure. The real cause is human sin. The Danvers statement, again, a summary of complementarianism, makes this clear. It says, in the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. When the biblical view of role differences is blamed for toxic masculinity, we need to love those around us enough to confront this falsehood. One approach might be to ask, do you think the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended discrimination? The response will almost certainly be no. Then we can ask, why not? We may then have the opportunity to point out that the Bible says that mistreatment of others results from human sinful nature, not the structures that order human institutions. The fourth way that the biblical view of male and female is attacked is through plain ignorance of the facts. Patriarchy literally is the rule of the father. Historians tell us that Roman households were patriarchal. The father had absolute power to rule. But neither Israel in the Old Testament nor the church in the New Testament were patriarchies. No Israelite or Christian wife or child was under the naked, individual, capricious rule of an all-powerful father. Both Israelite citizens and church members were under the rule of law. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, husbands and fathers were held accountable for their behavior by the town elders in the Old Testament and in the New Testament by the elders of the church. When we hear that the Bible, the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul, or Christianity has caused unjust treatment of women, we need to challenge that statement, beginning with the question, what makes you say that? After listening to their response, we may ask, have you read through the entire Bible? And perhaps we might have the opportunity to say, I have, and you are very misinformed about this. Fifth, the last false accusation directed against men's leadership at home is made using a fallacious argument called ad populum. This argument ridicules the other side as being completely out of date with modern thinking. It says, in essence, people who hold your views sound like the people who once thought the earth was flat. John Stackhouse, in his book Partners in Christ, A Conservative Case for Egalitarianism, acknowledges that certain New Testament passages embrace a sweeping complementarian viewpoint. He maintains, however, that once a culture, quote-unquote, has left its patriarchal origins behind, these passages are no longer meant to be obeyed, unquote. This argument is based upon condescension towards anyone who holds the outdated idea that men should lead their homes. It reeks of arrogance. 
It assumes that our current Western egalitarian culture, which calls viewing differences in male and female roles sexist, is enlightened more than every other culture that has not left patriarchy behind. What is worse is that he argues that we know better than what God's Word says. Today's Christians have been armed with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to wield in the battle over the gender ideas that will shape the rising generation in our nation, churches, and homes. But many Christian men are leaving their swords in their sheaths. Please don't do that. A lot of children and grandchildren are depending upon us to fight this battle for them. To summarize this episode, the speed with which gender theory is taking over our culture raises the question of whether Christian men have grasped our responsibility as God's covenant people to be a blessing to the world by speaking biblical truth about gender into the culture as salt and light. Martin Luther's question about our courage is justified. I see Christians joining the popular bandwagon of addressing racial injustice, but not taking the unpopular stand of addressing the culture's broken view of gender and the biblical remedy for the fatherlessness that is at the root of so much suffering in our cities. We reviewed the biblical worldview of fatherhood, noting that the very nature of God is expressed by this term for himself, our Heavenly Father, that God gave four times the ink in his creation revelation to the differences between male and female than he did to their similarities when we are afraid to even mention differences at all. We saw that the intimacy of a child with his father is the paradigm for understanding God's love, that God's history book begins not with a government legislative process or even the meeting of a church, but with the wedding of one man and one woman to provide the loving home where in his design the rest of the human race was to be raised. We saw that the biblical view of fatherhood begun with Abraham is that we are responsible for teaching our children and grandchildren to walk in the ways of the Lord. The rest of this three-week series will provide practical help for how to do that. We noted also that it is not only special revelation, the Bible, that teaches that fatherhood is irreplaceable, it is also God's creation itself, general revelation, where counselors in our day have discovered that many adults suffer in adulthood because of the deficit of the close, loving connection with a father that God intended. We also noted some irrefutable data that proves the centrality of fatherhood for children to flourish. We then noted that the argument that the Bible teaches oppressive biblical patriarchy is nonsense and took a stab at how to phrase questions to get others thinking about this deception that is guiding them. For further prayerful thought, why do you believe more Christian men do not take a stand for God's design of Adam and Eve differently to complete each other? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you may want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, we continue our June series entitled How God Uses Imperfect Dads to Impact Their Kids' Lives, sharpening our biblical understanding of what our goals should be in shaping our parenting plan. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org 
Thank you for joining us for today's episode. 